The Bible reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by, th- for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Lord God, we, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Uh, which we've just heard read in some ways, which we've been singing in different ways this morning. We thank you that it's true. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the the image of the invisible God, Uh, that all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell within you, that you are preeminent, that you are the supreme Lord. Uh, We pray this morning that as we come to your word, that you would be the one who is at work, we would pray that you would be the one who is exalted among us. And so, Lord, as I speak here, I pray that it would not be I, but you who are speaking through me, uh, Lord, to build up your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to please be seated. As you sit, uh, keep that reading there from Colossians chapter 1 open in front of you. That is where we will uh, be today. Uh, it is very good uh, to see you all this morning. Uh, I, love, I love Sunday mornings. I hope you love Sunday mornings. I love Sunday mornings. I love being able to gather with God's people. I love uh, being able to hear God's people sing. Uh, I love the singing of the saints. I can't tell you how many times the Lord has used the gathering of his people on a Sunday morning to bring uh, restoration, to bring healing. Even if it's been a crummy week, <laughs> Uh, To gather with God's people doesn't matter. It's so encouraging. So uh, it's good to be here. I love Sunday mornings. Praying together. There was some of us praying this morning and maybe 10 of us gathered this morning to pray, to hear the voices of God's people praying as well. Uh, It is a great encouragement. Grateful for these mornings. I hope they are an encouragement to you as well. And particularly when we come to a passage like this in Colossians that we're going to be meditating on here today. This is a glorious passage because uh, what it does is it points us to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us something of Jesus' majesty and his supremacy and his beauty. And so my, my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that when it comes to our lives and when it comes to our families and when it comes to our church, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. And you can see, in fact, that this is the very aim of this passage, If you look at the end of verse 18, uh, the point of all of life, the point of all of existence, the point of all of creation, the point of the church, the point of salvation, the 
The point of it all is that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Now, for someone to be preeminent means that that person has absolute supremacy. They have the highest rank. They are deserving of the greatest honor, and that's Jesus. And that's the purpose of everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. Now, there's a story told, a true story, about a medical missionary in China. Whenever someone came to him for treatment, he would always tell them the story, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And one morning before the clinic doors were open, there came to the missionary an old woman who was stooped over with age. And he could tell by the dust on her feet and clothing that she had come a very long way. That morning he, he treated her, and as always, he told her about Christ. The medical missionary later wrote of what happened with this woman. He said, quote, as the rose opens to receive the rays of the noonday sun... So her heart opened to receive the Savior. Her tears made little rivers down her dusty cheeks as she opened her heart to Jesus Christ. Several weeks later, there was a knock at the missionary's door. When he opened the door, he found the same old woman that had come to him several weeks before. She said, Sir, he has saved me, and I know he lives in my heart. He has made my life so happy. But, Sir, I have forgotten his name. Could you please tell me his name again? The missionary repeated over and over again the name Jesus. And each time the little old lady echoed that name, Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Friends, that's the name that we need on our lips. It's the name that we need in our heart because the truth of the matter is that Jesus is preeminent. There is no one greater than him. There is no one that outranks him. There is no one who is more important than him. And that's the point of our passage today. Now, last week we studied uh, verses 15 to 17, and so this morning we're primarily focusing just on verses 18 to 23, but it's necessary to be reminded of the context because the point of verses 15 to 17 that we looked at last week is that Jesus is preeminent in creation, meaning Jesus is the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things have been made. Okay, so every star, uh, every pebble, every animal... Every human being, all things have been created by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. In other words, they all exist for his glory. You exist for his glory. I exist for his glory. He is the preeminent one. And so now that as we come today to verses 18 to 23, the, the focus shifts from declaring that Jesus is preeminent in creation to now declaring that Jesus is preeminent in, we might say, the new creation. Uh, the new creation in which God remakes and restores and reconciles the world as he eradicates sin and evil and suffering forever. In that, too, Jesus is preeminent. Because, again, that's the goal. That's the focus. It's that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. So as we begin this morning, let's just begin by noting the fact that's clearly evident here in these verses, that there is indeed a new creation that has come and is coming. Okay, that's what's being described here. Just look at the verses in front of you, verses 18 to 23. Uh, this is a new creation in which the church is, is a central part of it. It's a new creation in which there's resurrection from the dead, and so Jesus is described here as being the firstborn from the dead. It's a new creation in which God in his fullness in Jesus dwells with us. Now, Jesus, in that sense, is the new temple of God, where we meet God, we have fellowship with God. 
And so it's a new creation in which Jesus has reconciled all things to God. It's a new creation in which peace has been won through Jesus' blood. It's a new creation in which individual sinners are reconciled to God for eternity. And thus, it's a new creation of hope. This is the hope of the gospel, verse 23. It's the hope of a new creation in which there's life and peace and reconciliation and forgiveness and complete renewal. And the reason why this is needed is because though Jesus originally created all things good, he created all things, he created all things good, nonetheless his creation rebelled against him, thus bringing about death and destruction of every kind, and thus bringing about the need for reconciliation and peace and healing. And so even as we might read verses 15 to 17, as we did last week, and we reflect on all of the, the beauty of the created world that Jesus made for his glory, and there is, so much, there is so much beauty in this world. I love when we sing, this is my Father's world. It's his world. There's beauty everywhere you look. And yet at the same time, even as we see the beauty, we're also daily confronted with the tragedy of the world. That everywhere we look, we can see traces of sin and suffering and evil and moral darkness. And so creation is crying out for salvation. It's crying out for renewal. It's crying out for recreation. I mean, even if you're not a Christian here this morning, I, I suspect, right, that you can hear that cry. And the Bible defines it as creation groaning. It's groaning to be recreated. And that's exactly what the hope of the gospel proclaims to us. And again, the point here is that Jesus is preeminent in that. And so if our, our first point this morning is that there's a new creation that has come and is coming, and therefore we have hope, our second point this morning is that Jesus is preeminent in this new creation. And specifically, his preeminence is highlighted with, with those three descriptions there in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, and he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, to say that Jesus is the head of the body of the church is to say that Jesus is the one who has all authority in the church. Uh, it is to say that Jesus is the one from whom the body, the church, receives life and, and direction. Uh, at the end of the sermon today, I'll try and lay out a few implications of this for the church itself, but what we need to understand biblically is that the, the, the church is at the center of Jesus' new creating work in this world. Uh, it's the church, it's the people of God where you'll find new creations. Uh, those who have been spiritually recreated and given new life. And so to say that Jesus is the head of the church is to say that Jesus is the authoritative source of this new creation. And again, the reason why is so that he might be preeminent in everything. Uh, not only that, but Jesus here is also described as the beginning. Uh, if you look back at verse 17, you'll see that this is a, a similar description that is there, that Jesus is before all things. And so in the same way that Jesus is before all things in the, the first original creation, so too he is the beginning of the new creation. Uh, which again is to say that he has the position of rule, he has the position of authority, he has absolute and total supremacy. Why? So that he might be preeminent 
in everything. Uh, he's also the firstborn from the dead. Uh, this, of course, is a reference to Jesus' resurrection. And in fact, it's, it's Jesus' resurrection more than anything else that signals that there's a, a new beginning. It's the beginning of a new creation. And here, too, there's a parallel with the first creation. So look at the end of verse 15. Uh, at the end of verse 15, Jesus is described as the firstborn of all creation. Okay, so in both cases, in the original creation and then here in the new creation, Jesus is described as the firstborn. Now remember, we made the very important point last week that firstborn, that's not a reference to time, it's a reference to title. In other words, the point isn't that Jesus is the first one in a long sequence to follow, but rather that he's the supreme one. And so we made very clear last week that it's, it's not that Jesus was the first created being because he's not a created being at all. He's the one who created everything. And so to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation is to say that he's the one who stands supreme over all creation. And that's the case here as well when Paul refers to Jesus as being the firstborn from the dead. Uh, the point isn't that Jesus is the first one to rise from the dead. The point here is that he's the most important one to rise from the dead. Because it's in his resurrection, it's a result of his resurrection, that we too now have the hope of being raised from the dead one day. Don't let those words just easily pass over you. We have the hope of being raised from the dead one day. Your body will die and decay and if you are a believer in Christ, you will be raised from the dead into eternal life. And so Jesus is the founder. He's the source. He's the ruler. He's the head of a new creation. So that again, in everything, he might be preeminent. Okay, so friends, you see, it's all about Jesus. Uh, the whole Bible, it's all about Jesus. Because what the Bible gives us, it gives us one grand story. It's kind of, kind of being captured here in a, in a small way in Colossians 1. Uh, the Bible begins with the creation of the world. It then details uh, the fall into sin and the devastation that follows. But all along the way, it holds out the promise and hope of salvation, which is ultimately achieved in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which itself is pointing us to the consummation and glorification of all things when Jesus comes again and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a whole new creation. That's, that's the storyline of the Bible. It's creation, it's fall, it's redemption, and then consummation or glorification. And Jesus is at the center of all of it. He's preeminent in the first creation. He's preeminent in the new creation. All of it from the beginning to the end. It's all about him. It's all from him. It's all through him. It's all for him. So that in everything, he might be preeminent. And so the question you have to ask yourself, the question that I have to ask myself is, does my life reflect that? Right? What place does Jesus actually have in my life? Or do you live, do you trust like Jesus is the sovereign and supreme one? Do you live, do you trust as if everything in this world and in the church and in, and in your life is for him? Parents, do, do you lead your children? Do, do you operate as parents as if your kids are not for you? They're for him. Parents, your kids aren't for you. They're for him. Do you live your life as if, it's, as if it's for him, not you? Your life isn't for you. It's for him. Same is true with your marriage. Same is true with your job, your toys, 
your plans. It's all for him. It's not for you. Your salvation, your hope, your spiritual life, your church, your ministry, your relationships, it's all for him. It's not for you. It's so that he might be preeminent in everything, not you and certainly not me. Jesus is everything. He is the point of it all. And so you see, it's not a question of does he have any importance to you. It's a question of ultimate importance. Does he have that place of ultimate importance in your life? And so it's not about him merely having some sort of presence in your life. It's not even about him having prominence in your life. It's about him having absolute un qualified preeminence. And friends, the way that the Apostle Paul writes here, listen, it's, it's impossible to avoid this searching question. Because Paul, he just keeps piling statement upon statement here of the glory and the majesty of Jesus. Look at verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20 essentially provide the basis for why Jesus has such preeminence in the new creation as the head, the beginning, and the firstborn. And that's why we have such hope for this very broken world in which we live. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, so here are two more remarkable statements exalting Jesus. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I think of the story of a preschool teacher who told everyone to draw a picture of what was important to them. In the back of the room, little Johnny began to labor over his drawing. Everyone finished, handed in their picture, but Johnny just kept drawing. The teacher graciously walked back, put her arm around Johnny's shoulder, said, Johnny, it's time to hand your drawing in. Little Johnny didn't flinch, he just kept drawing. The teacher asked him, what, what are you drawing? Johnny replied, I am drawing God. The teacher said, Johnny, no one knows what God looks like. Johnny replied, they will when I get done. <laughs> they will when I get done. Friends, no one knows what God looks like. But all of that changes with Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He, he makes the invisible God visible. And here now in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The, the fullness of God, all that God is, dwells in Jesus. Because Jesus has made him visible. And so, and so all the fullness of God's glory, all the fullness of God's wisdom, all the fullness of his goodness, all the fullness of God's grace, all the fullness of God's power, all the fullness of God's purposes. It all dwells in Jesus. And notice it does so with pleasure and delight. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And so you see, we can look to Jesus, we can know what God is like when we do. When we come to Jesus by faith, we actually meet God, we actually have fellowship with the, the living, eternal, infinite God because that's who this man Jesus is. Now, this man who is born in a stable in Bethlehem. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Listen, if we were uh, in the month of December and not March, uh, I promise we'd be singing Christmas carols today. 
Right? We'd be singing, hark the herald angels sing. Maybe you've forgotten already, three months later, you forgot what the words are. Let me just remind you what some of the words are for hark the herald angels sing. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Covered in flesh, but the Godhead see there, veiled in flesh, that God. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. See, that's who Jesus is. That's what he's come to do, to bring peace, to bring reconciliation, to to give us second birth, to, to raise us again from the earth. Verse 20, through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. John Woodhouse, in his commentary on Colossians, writes, The message of Christianity is nowhere more remarkable than in what is claimed for the death of Jesus. The claim here is that the fundamental disharmony in the universe, the dissonance in the totality of all things, The discord in the whole of created existence has been put right by the blood of his cross. It is an astonishing thing to say. Friends, the significance of the death of Jesus here is breathtaking. It's universal. It's that which is captured in so many of the the wonderful word pictures throughout Scripture that look forward to this day of a new creation. For example... Give you some Christmas passages. Isaiah 11. It's Christmas in March. Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fan calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's new creation. Isaiah 65 also looks forward to this new creation of reconciliation and peace. For behold, says the Lord, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And so just as in the first creation, all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, all things were created by Jesus. So too here in the, in the new creation, notice, Jesus will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Do you, do you see that parallel? Verse 20, verse 16. All things created by him, all things reconciled by him. Which doesn't mean, though, some sort of universal salvation in which every person is automatically brought into a saving relationship with God. We'll see very much in just a moment. It doesn't mean that. 
but it does mean that the death of Jesus has cosmic consequences that will remake everything. And so it does mean that ultimately every injustice will be made right. It does mean the eradication of all sin and suffering and evil. And if we can use the words of Philippians 2 that Timothy read for us at the very beginning of the service today, it does mean that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Sin and rebellion will be fully and finally defeated. All hostile forces will be put in their rightful place and all of God's faithful people in Christ will be brought into an eternal fellowship with him. And everyone who has ever existed will have no choice but to see that Jesus is the preeminent Lord. And brothers and sisters, the amazing news of the gospel is that in one sense, you see, particularly within the church, the new creation has already begun. Jesus has already begun to to restore the disorder. He's already begun to, to fix the disharmony and the lack of peace of the first creation. And he will do so fully and completely when he comes again. Because you see, the the victory that achieves the peace has already been won. And so now it just awaits the future to apply that victory fully and comprehensively throughout the cosmos. Because as verse 20 tells us here, look at verse 20. The victory was won at the cross. Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. Like the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell willingly in love went to the cross to die for our sin and rebellion against God. His death was a sacrifice for sinful people like us. Because the spilling of his blood, the the, the talk of blood here, is to take us back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Which were meant to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what Jesus does. He satisfies the wrath of God. He takes the judgment of God upon this world and he receives it so that there can be peace throughout the entire cosmos. That's the victory that's won at the cross and it impacts the entire cosmos. In fact, if you'll allow me to quote another Christmas carol this morning, he makes his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, joy to the world. He makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's what God was achieving on the cross through the death of Jesus. And listen, it was as significant and as far-reaching and as massive as the very creation of the world itself. It was the beginning of a whole new creation. Is that not astounding? On a hill outside of Jerusalem... In the year 33 A.D., on what was initially a sunny Friday afternoon, an event garnering little if no attention for the Roman Empire of the day was a bloodied and beaten man nailed to a cross. And yet in that very event was the creating work that reconciled heaven and earth. Blood poured out from him in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell so that the wrath of God could be satisfied, thus bringing peace and reconciliation throughout all of heaven and all of earth. Friends, how could Jesus not be preeminent in everything? He is. He must be. 
And though we're speaking of cosmic consequences. At the same time, all of this is and must be very personal for each of us. And so we said this morning that there's a, there's a new creation that has come and it is coming and therefore we have hope. We said that Jesus is preeminent in that new creation, verse 18. We've now seen why he's the preeminent one, verses 19 and 20. But we must finish this morning with some, some personal application here. Because again, all of this is ultimately very personal. Cosmic, but personal. It has very personal implications for our lives and the life of this church. So first of all, this must apply very specifically to your life. Just look at the change of emphasis in verse 21. Uh, throughout this section, Paul has been emphasizing Jesus by saying he is, he is, he is. But it shifts there at verse 21 to you. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, so Jesus' death has cosmic consequences. There's a, there's a cosmic reconciliation we can speak of that's achieved by the blood of Jesus, but this reconciliation also has to be personally applied to each of us. And that's what Paul is saying to the Christians at Colossae. He's saying, he's saying what's true cosmically is true of you individually. You were once alienated from God. You didn't know him. You didn't have a saving relationship with him. Indeed, you were hostile to him. Now, the way you thought about life, the way you thought about the world, you, you were an enemy of God. And in the way you lived, you, you lived as an enemy of God, you're doing evil deeds. And yet Christ in his death, in his body of flesh, this body that was sacrificed on the cross was so that you would no longer be alienated from God and no longer hostile to God, but instead God could now be reconciled to you. As the penalty for your sin was paid in Jesus. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 22 uh, that Christ has done this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, innocent, justified before him. Friends, that's a vital verse. Hang on to that verse. You need that verse for your soul. You need it to understand what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus has done for each and every believer is so comprehensive that when he presents us to the Father for inspection at the end of time, we will be found innocent of all the sins that we've ever committed. Because the death of Jesus was the death of the holy and blameless one who is himself above reproach. And so one day he will present us before the judgment seat of God and God will look at Jesus and God will declare us to be holy and blameless and above reproach. Brothers and sisters, that's the hope of the gospel. Now, that is the ultimate ultimate assurance that we have because of the cross. Indeed, even now, we can live our lives in God's presence fully reconciled to him and fully at peace with him because of what Jesus has accomplished for us at the cross. So you see, it's very personal. 
It's very personal. It's about individual lives and futures being radically changed by the death of Jesus Christ. It's about individual lives being brought into a right relationship with their creator. Friend, if you are not putting your trust in Jesus Christ alone, would you do that this morning? Because if you are not doing that, then you see you're living in hostility to God. Now, I realize you may not think that's the case. You may be like the patient who walks into the doctor's office thinking that they're fine and they're healthy. Only to learn that growing within them are cancerous souls that are destroying them from within. And friend, I'm sorry to say, but that's your diagnosis this morning if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because every person is born into this world in hostility to God, in rebellion against God. And the only way for there to be reconciliation and healing is through the blood sacrifice of Jesus. It's only in Jesus' flesh that was crucified that God can be reconciled to us because it's there that our sin has been paid for. And so you must understand that there's nothing we contribute to our salvation. Listen, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin and your rebellion. That's all you contribute. Christ has done it all. He is preeminent in our salvation. Friend, if you'd like to learn more about that, I hope you'll stick around after the service. There'll be some people up front here after the service. They'd love to share with you, talk with you more about what it means to put your faith in Jesus alone, to be justified by Jesus and his blood for you. And for those of us who are already Christians, uh, brothers and sisters, let's make sure we hear the exhortation and the warning of verse 23. Uh, verses 21 and, and 22 are, are true of you if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Friends, the mark of a true believer is that we keep going. Saving faith is sustaining faith. We keep looking to Jesus. We keep trusting Jesus and the hope of the gospel that we have it, and we keep seeking to honor him as the preeminent one. So brothers and sisters, keep going. Don't shift. Remain stable, steadfast. Think about what it is that might cause you to shift from the hope of the gospel. Whatever it is, fight back against it with all that you are. Saving faith is sustaining faith. We will know we're believers if we press on to the end. Keep going. And then finally, as we close this morning... I think we'd be remiss if we didn't recognize the significance that's given to the church here in these verses. And, and the part of Jesus' preeminence is that he is to be preeminent in the church. He is the head of the body, the church. As I noted earlier, uh, in this world, as we await the return of Jesus to, be, to come and to fully apply this cosmic reconciliation that he's already achieved. While we wait, the, the church is the locus. The, the, the church, you see, is the, it's the center of God's new creation in this world right now. Because it's to be in the church where you find Jesus' reconciled people. 
And it's in the church where you find those people who have already been made new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, that's the glorious reality of the church. We are new creations in Christ. And together, we are his body. And he is our head. He's the one with absolute authority. I don't have absolute authority. The elders don't have absolute authority. We don't rule the church. Jesus rules the church. This is Jesus' church. And he rules his church by his word. And he gives life and energy to his church through his Holy Spirit. And I keep saying we in this, referring to our little local church here, because don't just read this here in Colossians 1 and think of some, some vague universal church. Don't think of some vague universal church in which people sometimes, when they feel like it, meet for worship. No, I mean, who, who do you think Paul's writing to? He's writing to a church. He's writing to people who are assembled together there locally in Colossae as a church. They have designated leaders. They, they love each other in practical and, and tangible ways. He's not referring to some vague notion of people who call themselves Christians but never commit to any of God's local people in any local place. No, he's referring to the assembly of God's people gathered and covenanted together as those who are in Christ. It's a church. And that's us. Friends, don't miss the remarkable reality of what this is that we're doing here when we gather together as a church. Gathered in the name of Jesus, covenanted together, sitting under his word, empowered by his Holy Spirit. We are right here in this place, the very body of Jesus, and he is our head. I mean, that's the main reason I love gathering here every Sunday morning. It's gathering together with the body of Jesus. That's why I so often leave here refreshed and renewed, even if the week leading up to is crummy. It's because we are the body, and Jesus is the head. And therefore, he must be preeminent. He must be preeminent here. In everything we do, he must be preeminent. This isn't ours. It's not our church. It's not about our programs, our desires, or our preferences. It's all his. It's all for him in this work of the new creation. And as the head, he gives life to this church. And he builds his church. And he preserves and protects his church. And he gifts his church. We may want him to build it more. We may want him to give give it more gifts, but... He's the Lord. He knows what he's doing. It's his church. So, brothers and sisters, do you really view the church like it's Jesus' church? Do you view this church like it's his? You know, how often do you ask yourself when you're really, really worked up about something in the church, is this really the mind of Jesus? Does Jesus share my concerns? And if so, is it in the same way and with the same motives and attitudes? Am I really engaged in this church? Like this is, this is Jesus' body. Not mine, it's, it's his. He's the head. So 
So friends, let's take this this morning as both an encouragement and as a challenge to each of us. The encouragement is that we are the very body of Jesus. And he is our head. What a privilege it is to gather together. Keep that in mind every time we gather together on a Sunday morning. And thus the challenge, though, is let's work to make sure that, we, that what we do here isn't about us, but about him. Because the whole purpose of our existence is that he might be preeminent in everything. So, Lord, that is our prayer, uh, that you would be preeminent. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. Uh, we pray that you would be at work in this, your body, sustaining it, giving it life, equipping it, and sending it out into the world to proclaim this hope. Lord, in all things, we pray that you would be exalted here. We ask this in your name. Amen.